a reading from the first book of Kings. Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe and Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel lives, before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord, that Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bowls be given to us, and let them choose one bowl for themselves, and cut it in pieces, and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bowl, and lay it on the wood, and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord, and the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, It is well spoken. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose for yourselves one bowl and prepare it first, for you are many, and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And they took the bowl that was given them, and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made, And at noon, Elijah mocks them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he's musing, or he is relieving himself, or he is on a journey, or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation, but there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, Come near to me. And all the people came near to him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took twelve stones, according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with these stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he made a trench about the altar as great as would contain two seahs of seed, And he put the wood in order and cut the bowl in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, and that I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And in a little while, the heavens grew black with clouds and wind, and there was a great rain. The word of the Lord. Well, please be seated. And good morning. Thanks for braving the rain. I invite you to turn in your scriptures to uh, 1 Kings 
chapter 18, this great story of the contest between the Lord God and Baal. I want to tell you about Donna Kelsey. Anyone know who Donna Kelsey is? She's a mother of two NFL players, Jason Kelsey, who's a center for the Philadelphia Eagles, and uh, go Eagles, and Travis Kelsey, uh, a tight end for the Kansas City Chiefs. Okay. We're having a contest right here, is what we're doing. Now, when the Eagles and the Chiefs played one another in the Super Bowl, um, who was there but Donna Kelsey, and which jersey would she wear? Would she wear the Eagles jersey? Would she wear the Chiefs jersey? She would wear both in what's called a split jersey, um, which is the, the back of the jersey is an Eagles jersey, and the front was the Chiefs. And so it was a split jersey, dual allegiance uh, outfit. She has a whole closet full of these kinds of jerseys. Now, it's one thing for a mother to wear a split jersey to cheer for her sons. We can totally understand her position and would probably do the same thing. But when it comes to our allegiance to the God of the impossible, there's no room for a dual allegiance. He does not celebrate split jerseys among his people. But this was exactly the condition of the people. Uh, that God, uh, the people of God that Elijah was leading. Um, uh, and Elijah was a great prophet who lived 900 years before Christ. And he had to actually confront the dual allegiance problem. We can actually read about it in First uh, Kings 18, verse 21, which is on page nine of your programs or in your Bibles. First um, Kings 18, verse t- uh, 21, then Elijah approached all the people and said, how long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. But the people didn't answer him a word. Now, what's happening here? The people are wavering between two opinions. The word for waver carries a sense of like staggering, faltering, fainting in weakness. And they're weak because they have a divided mind. On the one hand, they're following Baal and all of the things that he's teaching and all the things that he's asking them to do. But on the other hand, they're following the Lord God and the covenant that God had put before his people. And so they're sort of like confused. One day they're feeling more like Baal. One day they're feeling more like the Lord God. And that puts you in a very weak, vulnerable position. If your mind is split, then you're going to be more likely to be knocked out. And the truth is that they're not just spectators here. They're players. They're on the field, as it were. Um, And following God on the one hand, following Baal on the other hand, they're spiritually in danger, confused. And so it's time for God to show once again in this generation that he's God of the impossible. He's shown the Israelites that had to pass through Egypt hundreds of years before. He's shown people again and again that he can do more than whatever false gods they're tempted to follow. But in this generation, they need to see it. They needed to have their own experience of the God of the impossible. They needed their faith to be raised. And I was wrestling this week about us, like, where are we at? And how do we need the same lesson? And I started asking different leaders. I asked the city group leaders. I asked the staff, like, where do we struggle as a people with split uh, loyalties and, and dual allegiances? You know, those of us who, who call ourselves Christians who want to follow God, Where do we struggle with this? And the number one word I heard, do you know what it was? Subtle. It's really subtle how we split our allegiances. And so we're tempted to follow not uh, like an out religion, 
like the, you know, the worship of Baal, but something more like reputation, something like comfort, feeling comfortable or feeling in control or feeling secure. Those are the things that we follow or, or having enough money. And, and there's all kinds of ways of following those lords and those gods without showing it on the outside. It's in our hearts, but it's so subtle that we don't even see it. And so what I have today as we walk through this story is some diagnostic questions for you. And so you can even begin to even offer up a prayer now, Lord, help me see if there is any dual allegiance in my soul, in my mind, in my heart. Am I split somewhere? And if I am, please help me see it. So the first diagnostic question that I've got for you is, who makes it rain? Or, or what makes it rain for you? Now, let's talk about rain. What does rain mean? In Canaan, and I wrote this sermon before I knew what the weather forecast was today. People worship Baal because they believed Baal made it rain. Baal's kind of a generic word for God in, in the ancient Near East. And so they would have different Baals for different sections of life. This Baal was a storm Baal, uh, you know, a lightning Baal, a, a rain Baal. And they looked to the rain Baal to make it rain. Now, in Canaan, in the promised land, in, the, in this area, rain was very, very precious. When it rained, it was like watching droplets of, uh, of food come down because unless it rained, your crops didn't grow. But if it rained, if it rained, not only would your crops grow, if your crops grow, you have more money. If your crops grow, you can grow your family. If your crops grow, your tribe can grow. So it's like little droplets of power, little droplets of food, droplets of security. And so it was really important in Canaan that it would rain and they built an entire culture, an entire priestly caste, an entire system around getting Baal to act on your behalf. And there would be sacrifices and there would be prayers. And from their perspective, everything was working great. So when the people of Israel moved into Canaan, guess what? They moved into a culture that had a system and had a belief that was commonly held. It was like common knowledge, common sense. Baal makes it rain. And we have a system for making it rain. You're new here, but you probably need to, you know, you bring some interesting things in from this God that you call Yahweh, you know, the Lord God. But also we've got a God that's operation in operation here. And this is kind of his territory. And so you better mix and match if you want it to rain, don't you want it to rain? And so, you know, there was an alliance between uh, Queen Jezebel, you know about Queen Jezebel, very bad queen. Um, and she did not follow the Lord God. She followed Baal. She really wanted Israel to follow Baal. She married Ahab and they got married. And, uh, and, and so they wanted an alliance, not just politically, but religiously. We want a religious alliance here between Yahweh, the Lord God, and Baal. And so we're going we're gonna to get married. We're going to get spiritually married. And this is where the divided loyalties came from. People of Israel followed Yahweh, but then culturally and just personally and just the peer pressure, and then they got, they got yoked, they got linked, and they got a dual allegiance. And they started to worship Baal. It's like, maybe we should do the rain dance, but maybe we should also participate in the covenant. So, you know, what's working really well for you? What seems to be working well? Who is making it rain? What is, it, what is making it rain? What gives you that refreshing feeling of comfort, connection, and confidence that everything is going to be okay? You know, maybe it is a, um, a leader or a caregiver or a politician 
or a higher up or an esteemed peer group, when they're doing well, you're doing well. They can rain drown droplets of affection, encouragement, significance, security. Who do you look to to make it rain? Is it a person, a group, a system? Now, Israel got that question wrong because they thought Baal made it rain. They really believed that. And so God in his grace brought a drought. You see, we can see 1 Kings 17, verse 1. It's the first verse printed just to give a little bit of context to what led to this moment we're about to experience here. 17.1, now Elijah the Tishbite from, Gil- from the Gilead settlers said to Ahab, as the Lord God of Israel lives, I stand before him and there will be no dew or rain during these years except by my command. There's gonna be a drought. This is the Lord God in some ways bringing some healthy agnosticism, some healthy skepticism about the claims of Baal. You think Baal makes it rain? I'm going to bring a drought for three years to show you that your system and your culture, as passionate and as sincere as it is, is built on a falsehood. So there's grace in the drought, actually, because it exposes the lie of the storm god. For the Lord God to bring a three-year drought is to bring an end to the fiction. Every counterfeit god, my friends, will let us down. And it is actually, it's a grace when there is a drought. It's a grace when our security, when our God, when our storm veil is exposed to be a fraud. Anyone facing a drought here? Maybe you have a relationship that's gone south. It was life-giving, but now it's life-sucking. Or maybe it's opportunities career-wise that were really making it rain for you, but now they're starting to dry up. Or it could be that the droplets of meaning and security that used to fall on you when you did certain things, no longer, it no longer has the same effect on you psychologically or emotionally or relationally. We don't realize sometimes that God is all we need until God is all we have. Sometimes when the, when the rain stops and we've got a drought, we're like, actually, now I'm realizing God is all I need, but he's all I have. And so the same God who brings the drought is actually, he's the only one who can make it rain. And when we start to realize that, that's actually the beginning of our freedom. That's the beginning of our liberation. That's the beginning of the end of our divided loyalties. So at the end of this three-year drought, Elijah challenged the prophets of Baal to a lightning contest at the top of Mount Carmel. So after three years, Elijah says, hey, let's actually bring an end to this. And so verse 23 of 1 Kings 18, Elijah says, let two bulls be given to us. One bull for themselves, cut it in pieces, place it on the wood, but not light the fire. And then Elijah says, I will prepare the other bull and place it on the wood, but not light the fire. Then you, that is the the Baal prophets, call on the name of your God, quote unquote, your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord. The God who answers with fire, he is God. And all the people answered, that's fine. Now, I, you know, who knows the tone that they said that in, but they at least agreed to this contest. But it does kind of sound like a wavery response, doesn't it? That's fine. Um, now, the prophets of Baal do go first. They cut their sacrifice. They put it in pieces on their altar. They lay it on the wood and they begin to call on the name of Baal, the storm god, to bring his signature lightning. And remember, this is his signature. And they're, they're on the mountain, which is, according to Baal mythology, where Baal lived. And so everything is set in place for Baal to just go ahead 
and and show himself that that maybe he's died for three years, but he can be resurrected and he can bring the he can bring the storm. But their prayers go unanswered for hours. And so they begin to 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 pray with all of their might. Verse 26, at the end of verse 26, it says they danced in frantic style around the altar they had made. We might think that this is just, you know, ridiculous dancing, but actually some of you who are dancers know that it's it's actually a highly skilled thing to be able to dance well. These people are giving the best that they have for their God. They're giving them their their uh, giving him their skill, their passion, and when that doesn't work, um, that exposes the true danger of the storm bale, as well as any other counterfeit deity. Because in verse twenty eight it says they shouted loudly and they cut themselves with knives and spears according to their custom until blood gushed over them. And what a gruesome sight. Oh, I, like, I felt sad studying this this week that here are, all these, here are all these men. You know, they're all sons of somebody. Like these are, these are men made in God's image, but they're slashing themselves and they're bleeding all over the place for a lie. And there's, it's like a fountain of blood all over this altar. It's like so tragic. And I, and I grieve to know that they bled for a God that didn't actually exist. And so this is actually the second diagnostic question for all of us to ask, not just who or what makes it rain, but what makes you bleed? What makes us bleed? What are we willing to bleed for in our life? Because the thing is that all false gods require blood. They require sweat. They require tears. And, and they say, you have to bleed for me in order for me to, to do something good for you. And like priests in the elaborate bloody dance, you know, we tend to act weird around our idols. We tend to, to do things for them. We tend to give them our best, but it, it actually debases us. Um, and it's exhausting. It's never ending. You know, I was thinking about just the nature of addictions this week. And addictions have a way of making people bleed. Because, uh, you know, if like, take, take alcohol take drugs, take social media even, take entertainment or gambling or even working. All of these things can be addicting legitimately. And what they do is they take more and more and they give us less and less. There's diminishing returns. And they take a lot of our money. They take our life. They take our energy. And then what happens is that it swallows up our relationships also. Some of you are familiar with the Alcoholics Anonymous big book. You know about this? Here's a quote from the big book. Addiction is a family disease. One person may use, but the whole family suffers. You know, so there's subtle ways to bleed. We can bleed our time, money, money energy, relationships for, for, for the hit, for the addiction. I would say also that outcomes that we want can make us bleed. We can bleed for the right outcomes, can't we? We can bleed out everything we have for achievement at work or achievement at school like rain down on us achievement, I'll bleed for you. I'll give you everything I have. Or we bleed out whatever quality investment we could have been giving to our kids in order to make great sales numbers rain down upon us. Or we can bleed out actually our integrity. We can bleed out our sense of what is right and wrong so that we can gain that romantic interest. We can keep their attention or that admired friend to keep them in our life or we can bleed out all of our money even, or a lot of our money, maybe too much, on self-care in order to have the good feelings to rain down upon us. There's all kinds of subtle ways 
for us to bleed? What makes us bleed? What uh, calls out our blood, sweat, and tears in order to get the droplets of grace? You know, when we, we make a good, all the, a lot of these things that I mentioned are good things made ultimate. And so when we make a good thing an ultimate thing, what happens is that um, we start to bleed for it. It asks for more and more and, and it gives less and less. But it's so good to realize, it's a grace actually to realize I'm bleeding for a counterfeit God who would never bleed for me. It's a grace. It's, it's a gruesome sight to see the blood, but it's a grace to see it because we realize I'm making a sacrifice for a God that will never sacrifice for me, that will only take but never give. So after hours of dancing, bleeding, and crying out, verse 29, no one answered, no one paid attention. No one answered, no one paid attention. It's like this stark observation of reality. And this moment is so important for Israel that after three years of drought, Baal is not coming to the rescue. And we've got all his priests. We're up on this mountain. We've seen so much bloodshed. We've seen all this dancing and it's sinking in. I've had false hope in a false God and it's not going to work. And this is their, you know, you've heard of the, you know, Nietzsche's phrase, God is dead. Here is their God, Baal is dead moment. It's their, it's their moment where, where they deconstruct, where they lose their faith, where they realize that I've always believed a lie. And yet the Lord loves to meet people in this um, moment where their idols have let them down. That is a moment actually when the Lord God draws near to, to help, to encourage, to cleanse, to save, and, and to say, hey, look, your God has been overpromising and under-delivering, and I'm here to rescue. I'm here to show you who the real God is. The Lord God is ready to meet all of us when our idols have let us down, when our, when our counterfeit gods have let us down. Um, when, when we're grieving, when we're, when we're letting go of something that was really precious to us, he's there to say, I've always been there and I will be there for you and I'm ready to lead you into freedom and show you who I am. And here's the invitation to the Israelites and to us when we've been let down by our false God. And here's the invitation, come to the altar. Come to the altar. When it came time for Elijah to call upon the name of the Lord God to bring the lightning storm, the first thing he did is he drew the people in to the altar. And why is that? Why is he drawing people to the altar? It's because the altar of the Lord is where we draw near to God and where he draws near to us. It's always where the altar is, where, where he says, come near, come near to the altar because this is where we can draw near to the Lord God. And this is where the Lord God draws near to us. Um, when we come to the altar, one important thing that happens, when we come to the altar of the true God, the living God, you know what happens? We remember who we are. We remember who we are. Verse 30 of 1 Kings 18. Then Elijah said to all the people, come near me. So all the people approached him. Then he prepared the Lord's altar that had been torn down. Verse 31, Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob to whom the word of the Lord had come saying, Israel will be your name. And he built an altar with stones in the name of the Lord. Now note here that the altar of the Lord was in disrepair. And it sort of had had that quality. It was like symbolizing the spiritual condition of the people of Israel. Some of you were here at the beginning of this year. Remember we did that series in uh, Let Your Hands Be Strong um, from Haggai and Zechariah. And do you remember that the torn down temple that was in disrepair for years was sort of a symbol of the spiritual condition of the people? It was sort of this 
outward sign of an invisible reality, which is that the covenant was broken. It's the same thing here. The altar is sort of in disrepair and it's coming from this dual loyalty. And yet it was the Lord's intention, my friends, to repair both the altar and the people that it represented. Notice that Elijah takes 12 stones, which represent each tribe of Jacob. Now, so every person huddled around the altar could see, hey, that's my tribe stone. I'm the tribe of Benjamin and the tribe of Benjamin is being placed upon the tribe of Jacob and they're being built together like living stones are being, you know, mortars being put up. And, and this thing's not looking like it's in disrepair anymore. It's looking like it's going to honor the Lord. And, and then you begin to remember all the stories, all the stories of God making a covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, a covenant that God promised that he would never break. And you remember how the Lord God made Israel a people and how he put the nation together where there was no nation and how he gave them a name and how he made them holy and gave them an identity and gave them something to live for and gave them a calling. And you realize like, that's my heritage. That's my family. That's my, that's my uh, deposit of faith. You remember who you are. We remember who we are when we come to the altar of God. Not only that, but at the altar, we bring the burden of our souls. We bring our baggage. We've all got baggage. We've all got burdens. We're carrying so much. At the altar, when we draw near the Lord, he wants to take that burden. He really does. Verse 32, at the um, last part of verse 32, talks about how Elijah made a trench around the altar large enough to hold four gallons. And then next he arranged the wood, cut up the bull, and placed it on the wood. Now listen, my friends, after all the Baal worship, the people of Israel deserved to die, according to the covenant at least. They had been worshiping a false god. And so, but as they drew, nail, drew near to the, to the altar, what they were able to do is because that there was an animal sacrifice on that altar, they were able to place upon that animal sacrifice all of their baggage, their Baal baggage. And that animal would take the, the sacrifice. It would actually take the wrath. It would take the punishment for their sin. This animal sacrifice had been God's chosen substitute for Israel's sin for hundreds of years. And how often had these very people met the Lord, had come to the day of atonement and seen God remove the sins of the entire nation through the animal sacrifice. God takes our baggage at the altar. He takes our sin. He takes the burden of our souls. But at the altar also, we see God draw near to us. We see God do the impossible. Um, next, it says, uh, fill four pots with water and pour it on the offering to be burned and on the wood. And then verse 34, and, and Elijah said a second time, and they did it a second time. And then he said a third time, and they did it a third time. So the water ran all around the altar, and even filled the trench with water. And what's the deal with the water? Especially in the three-year drought. I'm sure many of the crowd were like, that is pre- that's like liquid gold that you're pouring right now over this sacrifice. What are you doing? Elijah directs them to pour four vats of water over the, four large vats of water over the altar, over the offering, and then repeat that process three times. So not only are there 12 stones, there's 12 vats of water. And maybe what comes to mind as you watch this is all of the impossible situations involving water that you've heard of but never experienced. You've heard stories of the Lord God flooding the earth to renew it. You've heard stories of God parting the waters all night 
to deliver your ancestors from slavery? You've heard stories of God making the bitter water sweet and drinkable, or God providing water that would gush from the rock in the middle of the desert. You've heard all of those stories, and maybe you thought, I don't really know if those were true or not, but anyway, you know, maybe it was true then, or maybe it was God was something willing to do something miraculous for them then, but not for me. But then you see all of this water being poured out, and you're like, maybe this, maybe this is my water miracle. Maybe this is my moment to see the Lord God show me and show my parents and show my siblings and show everyone around me that he's the God of the impossible. God is mighty to save, my friends. He's mighty to save from sin and from death. And here we've got this three-dimensional picture. You've drawn near to the altar. It's been a three-year drought. And this altar represents everything God intends to do. Restore the nation. Take away her sin and save her from a deadly drought. But there's one last thing that remains, and it's the fire from heaven. It's the thing that Baal said only he could do. It's the lightning storm for which you've waited three years. And so at the time for evening sacrifice, Elijah prays this, verse 37, answer me, Lord, answer me, so that this people will know that you, the Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the Lord's fire fell and consumed the burnt offering, the wood, the stones, and the dust, and licked up the water that was in the trench. Maybe you have heard, seen lightning and thunder up close. Have you ever been a little too close to a lightning storm? You just feel the boom and you see the lightning and it sort of, you know, it kicks you back a little bit. When all the people are surrounding the altar, they, they must have been like blown back by this fire from heaven, this lightning that came. In an instant, they saw God do the impossible. What took Baal three years to not do, God does instantly. When all the people saw it, they fell face down and said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. In a little while, um, this is at the very, uh, toward the end of 1 Kings 18, verse 45. In a little while, the sky grew dark with clouds and wind and a heavy rain started to fall at the end of three years. Now, this is the moment that they traded in their split loyalties for a singular, undivided worship of the Lord God Almighty. Notice that they bowed down to him. Notice that they worshiped him, not just in their heads, but with their bodies, with their hearts. The Lord God, my friends, he brooks no rival. He does not put up with dual allegiances. He doesn't tolerate lies. He can do what no other counterfeit God can do. He can forgive our sin. He can restore us as his people. He can heal us. Um, And did you notice that uh, this key phrase Answer me so that the people will know that you are the Lord God. That is exactly what Elijah was asking. He wanted their faith to match the character of the Lord God. After three years, God shows his grace by sending rain. He's the true God of the storm and the rain. And this is where it all gets settled. We've shown that Baal is a fraud and we've shown that the Lord God is the true God. So what about us and our split jerseys? One half of our loyalty potentially could be given to the Lord Jesus, to his ways, to his kingdom. And the other half of our loyalty loyalty could be given to a counterfeit, a substitute God that promises to make it rain. And remember that this is subtle for us. That's part of the point. It's subtle. The invitation for us, no matter what our counterfeit God, no matter where our hearts are tempted to be split, is the same for the people of Israel, and that is to come to the altar. Come to the altar. 
Come to the altar where we bring our own version of bail baggage, of a divided heart. And here we find God's mercy. Our Lord God was crushed so that we could be put back together. Here's God's justice. God's fire fell down on a different mountain outside Jerusalem where Jesus, God's lamb, was consumed with the fire of God's judgment for sin. Here finally is God's power as Jesus Christ draws all people to himself as he promised he would in our gospel reading today as he's lifted high on the cross. He pours out the refreshing, cleansing, healing waters of his Holy Spirit to wash away all idolatry and refresh our souls this morning. Come to the altar, my friend, and remember who you are. You are God's chosen one, his daughter, his son. You were created with a purpose, saved for his glory. His love for you is unconditional. His arms are open. He has mercy for you, and he wants to draw you near to the altar of mercy to take your burden and give you his power. He, he does have a purpose for your life. And his purpose for you is going to include things that you're going to be tempted to love. You know, all of us are probably going to be tempted to love our work. That's why it's our work. That's why we choose it. All of us are going to be tempted to love too much the people in our life. That's why they're in our life is because we've chosen them. In many cases, we love them. We want to serve them. God's purposes will often include those things. But he's always going to be, he's always going to be like challenging any ways that those things in our life, which are good, have become ultimate and call us back to his heart. Call us back to freedom. There's freedom for you this morning. There's undivided loyalty for you this morning. There's an opportunity for you to see the true God for who he is this morning. Listen, the worshipers of Baal, they spilled their blood for a false God to act and it didn't work. Now listen, in Christ, we have the exact opposite. We have in Jesus Christ, someone who does not ask us to cut ourselves and give blood, but rather he has given his blood for us already. On the cross, when he died, his blood was already shed for us to give us forgiveness of our sins, to make us whole, to make us new. God is always ready, my friends. He's already bled for you. And he's already ready to remove your burden, hear your prayer. He's ready to help us to stop staggering, to stop wavering. This is a spiritually dangerous position for us to be in, to be between two opinions and two loyalties. So let's come to the altar, my friends. The altar is where God's fire falls. And when we draw near to him, he draws near to us. He consumes the substitute, but he's not consume us. And our loyalties and our allegiance to the Lord God can be singular and undivided. Let's pray together. Almighty and gracious God, you are worthy of our undivided loyalty and devotion. And so Lord, we confess whatever ways our loyalty has been divided, whatever we've thought was making it rain, whatever we've been bleeding for, Lord, we beg your forgiveness. We thank you for the sacrifice of your son, Jesus. Lord, you bore our sins and brought us forgiveness and life. And so Lord, as we come to you, as we draw near to you, we remember who you are, that you are the Lord God, the only one, and that we are your chosen ones created for your purpose. We do, Lord, ask for your consuming fire We ask that it would fall, that it would burn away all counterfeit gods. We ask that that fire would burn in our hearts and be the love of God, burning more brightly, Lord. And we we ask that all that would be done, uh, would be done for your glory, Lord, not for our own or for any false God. Through Jesus Christ, 
our Savior, your Son, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.